0: Good morning. special to be with you this morning. special to have chapel people with us this morning. Sorry that it was kind of a last minute change. If you don't mind, um, we're going to start off in um, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. You go ahead and start turning to that passage. And uh, this is a, a famous Kind of a famous passage on separation, I guess you might say, and I've been studying it recently. and Have a few thoughts to share with you on it this morning, and a few of the questions that uh, we will try to answer as we go through this are: uh, What is an unequal yoke? What what is God promising us in this passage? How should we respond to those promises? So this is 2 Corinthians chapter six, uh, verses eleven. I'll start at verse eleven. We'll get through to chapter seven, actually verse two. Uh, the kind of the main takeaway that I want us to get from this from this message is that um, God is rela- inviting us into this relationship, this covenant with Him, and that invitation. Ought to cause us to 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 be willing to renounce, get rid of, clean up anything that that gets in the way of that that relationship. So let me uh, go ahead and read these verses, starting at verse eleven. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, Second Corinthians chapter six, verse eleven. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return I speak as the children, widen your hearts also. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness, what accord has Christ with Belial? And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. So, first, what we're going to do is, uh, I want to kind of walk through these verses again and and just talk about what they're saying kind of at a high level. Um, And then we will try to answer a few questions. What this passage is saying. So, the first couple verses, which I included, even though they aren't specifically talking about unequal yoke, they say, You are restricted, Paul's telling them, you are restricted in your own affections. He says, we have spoken freely to you. In fact, it, literally, he's saying, our mouth is open. Our mouth is open to you. He's, he's spoken frankly with the Corinthians. But he also says, our, our heart is open. Uh, he has, even though he's had to tell them some tough things, he's been sincere and loving toward them while he said that. So, good policy for us to keep in mind is if we're going to be open-mouthed, we should also be open-hearted. But the Corinthians uh, on the other side of the relationship have not been this way. They have not been as, as open to Paul. Uh, there is some something in the way, something that is also restricted their affection. Restricted in their affections. And you'll notice that after we go through verses 14 through 18, which talk about uh, separation, need for separation. He kind of comes back around to this point again and says, make room in your hearts for us. So to me, the fact that he, he kind of starts on that subject, talks about separation, then returns to that subject, suggests that he sees their involvement with the world as part of the problem. And that is contributing to this, their relationship with Paul not being what it should be. And and when he says you are restricted in your affections, to me that suggests that their affection for Paul is being limited by worldly affections. And then in verse 14, of course, it says don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And we're going to talk about what that might mean. For now, just notice he's not saying don't relate to unbelievers and have nothing to do with them. He says don't be unequally yoked to them. And then he has, He goes into, here's why, and he he makes six different comparisons. Each of them are asked as rhetorical questions. What partnership do righteousness and lawlessness have? Easy answer, there is no partnership. There's none. What fellowship do light and darkness have? Easy answer, none. they are opposites. What accord has Christ with Belial... Uh, that apparently is a Hebrew word for Satan, and there's no accord, nothing. They're opposites. They don't, they don't make agreements and work together on projects. They're opposites. What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Or another way to phrase this, in translations put it this way: What has a believer in common with an unbeliever? So I don't know if you'd say easy answer for this one or not. We'll come back to this one. So let's jump down to the next one. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Would it be okay to put idols in the temple of God? Like side exhibit or something? No. The easy answer is no. There's, there's no agreement. That would not be okay. So if you back up to the previous question, what portion does a believer share from a believer? What do they have in common? Well, we, we honestly do have some things in common. But the the answer Paul is looking for here, the answer the teacher Paul is trying to get out of his students is none. Really, where it matters most, we don't have much in common at all. For we are the temple of God, which is true of us as individuals, it's true of us as a local body, as a church. And then we go into these uh, these promises, that come from the Old Testament. Paul here is combining multiple Old Testament verses to form these statements. So if you're if you're looking to find a passage in the Old Testament that reads exactly like he's quoted here, you will be disappointed. You won't find it. You will find some verses that are uh, very much word for word and, and other spots it's hard to find any passage for. He is it's not so much he is specifically quoting the Old Testament, he is summarizing a truth that is expressed throughout the Old Testament. And, you know, I, you know, I wouldn't feel, you know, I wouldn't quote Scripture like Paul does, but I'm okay with him doing it this way because he's, he is uh, inspired and, and um, led by the Holy Spirit. Divine inspiration. But the thing that he is showing us is that this special covenant that was expressed in the Old Testament is, is also uh, is a promise that is valid in the New Testament. In fact, this thing of God wanting to be in a special covenant relationship with His people is uh, the truth that is the same in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And, and in the same way, God wants His people to be separate part of the covenant. And the thing to remember here as we look at this passage is that when we get mixed up with the world, uh, it's obviously going to affect our relationship with God. It's also going to affect our relationship with God's people and and how um, open we are with them and how well they can influence us and shape our lives. And then the next two verses, again, are kind of how we should respond to the promises. Uh, We should should produce a cleansing in our lives. Making room for God. Making room for um, other good influences. Alright. Now, before I forget, I think I'm going to close uh, the service myself. I'm just trying to find you. So, um, I think we'll I will close the service up here and then you can just, uh, after we pray, you can lead us in a closing song and then we'll be done while we stand or something. Just wanted to give him a heads up before I forgot and strung it on him. Alright, so now let's talk a little bit about what is an unequal yoke. And then we'll talk about uh, how we should apply this passage. So, the unequal yoke concept is is a major element of this passage. There's a lot of other stuff going on here also. Paul says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And the basis for this expression is probably Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 10, where God gives the command, you shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. And now it's possible that God was, by teaching them this commandment, He had a principle in mind that He wanted them to start thinking about, that um, they maybe had some object lesson. Kind of wrapped up in that, but as far as I can tell, the main reason for this commandment is simply that it would be hard on both animals. I mean, it would be difficult to plow with an ox and a donkey. Uh, they're very different animals. They're different, different build, different stride length, um, different in weight. You know, like a, a steer would weigh what 1,500 to 2,000 pounds grow? I don't know. A donkey, I know this because I googled it, is about 500 pounds. So, plowing with a 1,500 pound animal and a 500 pound animal, doesn't sound like it would work real well. And probably be miserable for both of them. So, maybe putting it in today's terms, like if I if I did something to one of my vehicles and damaged two wheels and had to replace them and one of them came from a Honda Civic, and I put it on my left side of the car, and then because I saved so much money on that wheel, I went and bought one from a Toyota Land Rover and put it on the right side, even if that was mechanically possible, it would not be a good idea. It would not work out well, and I would not want to pull out on 501 with something like that. That is kind of the idea of an unequal yoke. Does not two things that don't go together, um, trying to trying to work together. Did Paul have something specific in mind when he said, "Don't get into an unequal yoke. Don't be unequally yoked." I think in general it'd be safe to say these Corinthians were a little. Uh, they got they they mixed with the world more than they should have. They got involved in some activities. That they should not have. Uh, I don't know if Paul specifically is, is thinking about marriage. It could be that he, he thought about the possibility of, of marriages that could not happen, that wouldn't, that he wants to warn against. It could be uh, the, the idolatrous temple feast that they seem to be participating in in, in the first letter. He talked about that in first Corinthians. Maybe it's the false teachers that have been circulating. That one kind of clicks with me because because it's a it's a major topic in this letter, especially in um in this letter, especially in chapter eleven. And we know they've been trying to discredit Paul and the Corinthians seem to be way too tolerant of them and maybe even appreciative of them. And I could see how that could maybe fit with with what Paul has in mind. Paul calls them false apostles and deceitful workmen. That's in chapter 11. But it's possible that that Paul has multiple applications in mind for this unequal yoke. And I don't think it would be safe for us to say, you know, this only applies to marriage. Or it only applies to a really close business partnership. Or it only applies to false teachers. Because I think this is multiple applications we need to be aware of and look out for Uh, I tried to come up with a definition for an unequal yoke. And I, I, I really struggled to nail down something that every definition I came up with, there was usually an exception that didn't seem to quite fit. But here's kind of where I landed. And, and Paul doesn't really give us a clear definition. All right, So if your definition is slightly different from mine, that's, that's okay. Uh, but it is, it is a relationship with an unbeliever that much I feel safe about. It is, it is something with an unbeliever. A relationship or an arrangement with an unbeliever where we feel, this is the yoke part of it, we feel pulled to, to meet that other person's expectations in areas that, that start to be in friction with our, our, our desire to serve God. That kind of work, you know, it is—it's it's where they've got expectations, and we feel some obligation and meet them. But that—that that person's, you know, belief system and where he's going doesn't line up with where I'm going, so there's this friction here. It doesn't work well together. Uh, that's a negative relationship we don't want to be in. The only yoke that we want to have is Christ's yoke. How can we find ourselves in an unequal yoke? Would be. Uh, getting married to an unbeliever. I think that certainly qualifies. A person who is already married to an unbeliever does not need to separate. 1 Corinthians 7, see that? Chapter for that. But definitely don't marry an unbeliever. I think that would fit here. A uh, friendship that's too influential, I think, could become an unequal yoke. Simply having an un- an unbeliever for a friend, I do not see that as an unequal yoke. But if it became too too close to the point where, um, where we feel a strong need to have that other person's approval, or he becomes a role model, then that I believe would become. If it if it affects you in a way in which you feel pulled to put your Christianity on the back burner, I believe that would qualify as an unequal yoke. And you realize that's not thats not helpful to him, to the unbeliever, it's not helpful to you. It could be a business arrangement. We often think about business arrangements when we hear of unequal yoke. It could be someone. It could be maybe a, a partnership. It could, I think, be an employee and a, and a boss, where the expectations and obligations are just uh, wearing away at us and... Um, We are under too much pressure to compromise when either by taking advantage of people or getting involved in business practices that are not above reproach. So those are some different ways in which I think we could end up in an unequal yoke. Not saying that every business partnership with an unbeliever counts or or just being employed by an unbeliever would count as an unequal yoke. I'm just saying they could become that. Alright, so those are some thoughts about an unequal yoke. I've got three different ways I feel like we should respond to this passage. Uh, the, the first way is to simply appreciate the difference between believers and unbelievers. We need to see that as a, as a positive thing and, and not a negative thing. That is, that is a positive thing. It's, it's positive for believers to be different. They should be different from unbelievers. We're to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Uh, God wants us to be different. And while the world may hate that, it really needs us to be different. So there should be a huge gap when it comes between us, between believers and unbelievers. Uh, We have some things in common. We all need food and air and water and sleep and we're all created by God and we're loved by God and Jesus died for us. So those are some things that we have in common. But when it comes to what is going on inside of us and what should be flowing out of us, uh, we are very different. in, In the Part of us that matters most should be very different. Back in the spring, we were in Missouri, and I had an encounter with a bear—not really, but I got to stand right next to a grizzly bear. That was on his hind legs, very large bear. But I was not too worried because we were in a bass pro shop, and he was mounted. Now, take a a grizzly bear, a mounted grizzly bear, and take a live grizzly bear. You can draw a whole lot of comparisons. I mean, they've got so much in common. They've got fur, eyes, feet. I mean, just on and on. You could you could go into you could could compare these and, and draw similarities extensively. But I promise you, if you're in the same room as a live grizzly bear. You won't be thinking so much about the similarities anymore, and and um, you think, you know, this is not what I was expecting. If you were if you were looking for a, a mounted grizzly bear, when it when it comes to what matters most, those two bears, with all that they have in common, they're very different, very different, at a very different place. One is alive and the other isn't. And we expect huge difference in behavior. Uh, Believers and non-believers are, are hugely different and should behave differently. And it must not be just I'm basically the same as that other guy, but I, I there's certain theological facts that I hold to. It, it, that must not be the only thing that we see is is being different between us. In John chapter 17, Jesus says, He said this twice, They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. in verses 14 and 16. How different was Jesus from those who did not follow God? Was it just that Jesus had certain theological ideas that other people didn't? Or did he really live a just remarkably different kind of life? He was authentic and patient and loving and honest and pure and self-sacrificing. And so being in a a covenant relationship with a man like that ought to cause differences to show up in every er area of our life, whether it's... Extremely slow checkout line. Um, you know, a believer versus an unbeliever. not saying that unbelievers always respond badly in those situations. I'm just saying that's the kind of situation in which uh, if there's going to be a difference, if, 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 if an unbeliever is not responding right, a believer should. That's the kind of situation in which the differences should show to themselves. Um, an angry boss, the response of a believer versus an unbeliever. An inappropriate ad on a website, the response of a believer versus an unbeliever. What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? Says Paul. Now, being different to, in itself should not be a goal all by itself. Here's what should really drive and change you. And this comes to the second way we should we should apply these this passage. It is to treasure your covenant relationship with God. The Old Testament promises that Paul quotes here are also valid in the New Covenant because Paul says since we have these promises. That's in chapter 7, verse 1. He just reads the promises or writes them. And then he says, since we have them, we need to respond to them because they're still valid. And we need to... These promises here, they they are amazing and they are kind of hard to fathom. They they don't even mention eternal reward. We've got all that in addition. They talk about us being in a close relationship with God. And here's, here's what he is promising in these verses. So, look at verse 16. These are the promises to those who will come out and be separate. Verse 16, God will dwell with us. That is God Himself in our midst. This is not a memorial to God, not a representative or a prophet of God. This is God Himself dwelling in our midst. God will walk with us, so experiencing life with us. If you go on a hike with me, you're going to experience that trail with me. When it's when it's flat and easy, when it's downhill and extra easy, when it's uphill and steep, and probably you'll hear me uh, wishing I'd spend more time on the treadmill or something. And if we go too long, I'll probably complain about complain about my feet. But the shared experience. God walking with us. Now, this is, this is Emmanuel. Verse 17. Those who separate themselves receive a warm welcome from God. A warm welcome. That's at the end of verse 17. So this is not someone reluctantly fulfilling a promise like a company... Feeling of a warranty. It's a warm welcome. This is what he wants. Verse eighteen: a spiritual adoption. Behold, first John three one. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us. Because it did not know Him. And so, He is our Father. We have His identity. We belong to Him. <clears throat> and you, you just can't, you can't express what these promises mean. God wants to have this covenant relationship with you. But He is holy, and so His people must be holy also. It's a big deal to Him that, that our devotion for Him is pure and unmixed. And an unwillingness to separate ourselves from the world is like asking God, well, that's okay if I put an altar to Baal in your temple. Would you mind? And Paul says, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? So we need to, that was the second, I think, response we should answer for this passage, is just to put a high value on this covenant that God is extending to us. And just how much we value it is answered by the next verse in chapter 7, verse 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God, or perfecting holiness. That's how the New American Standard and the New King James Version would put it: perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Clean up your life is is the is the way to respond to this covenant that God is extending. Uh, we haven't talked about this a whole level, but. but why is it a big deal for God? Why does He want us to be clean from these defilements and to avoid unequal yokes? And and it, it, it's because of this this desire for us to be and now uh, missing the verse. It's over in um, chapter eleven. Paul. Paul being concerned about these false apostles pulling them away from from what he calls a pure devotion to Christ, and that is what God is is looking for. Now, the Corinthians needed to do some cleaning in their lives, and probably some of us also need to do some cleanup work. Here's. Your... I want us to think about a scenario of where someone needs to cleanse himself of a defilement. Let's say you've got something defiling in your life, but you're not going to do chapter 7, verse 1. You're not going to cleanse yourself of it. So then, you we would have to say, well, you're not completely holy. Not perfectly holy. Now, that, that doesn't sound so bad. I mean, who is perfectly holy? No one's perfect. Is anyone completely done with sanctification and ready to move on to other projects? But the problem is, if you are aware of something and you're not doing your cleanup work, not cleansing yourself of it, it's, it's very close to saying that you don't want to be separated unto God. That it's not worth it to you. It's, it's very close to saying, you know, I would I would rather tolerate that problem than be close to God. Here's a quote from A. W. Tozer, and I don't remember exactly which work or which uh, which writing this this comes from, but I remember that he said it because it stuck with me. And maybe it's a bit of an oversimplification, but there's a lot of truth to it. Okay, This would be easy to remember. A.W. Tozer said, every man is as holy as he wants to be. There's a lot of truth to that statement. So, yeah, we are not going to be 100% perfect people, but we don't want to be in a place where we have something we're being convicted about, something that, that should, where we need to cleanse ourselves of it. And and not be doing it. How do you know if, if you have something in your life that you should get rid of? Uh, and honestly, I think sometimes we don't know. Sometimes we think, is it okay? Is it not? It, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal, but maybe I should get rid of it. Other times we do know. I mean, we just we're we're, we're trying to make it. We're we're making excuses, and that's not that bad. But we really know it, It's not okay. So here's some questions we could ask ourselves that might help us. One would be, is it causing impurity in my life? Is it causing impure thoughts? Is it causing impure speech? So now forget about whether you should be mature enough to resist this influence. Right now the mature thing to do is to free yourself of it. So if it is causing impurity in your life, You should get rid of it. Is it causing you to indirectly participate in evil? This one maybe is a little more fuzzy. But especially maybe in the area of entertainment, we could be indirectly participating in evil. Uh, If I remember right, the early Christians wouldn't go to chariot races or to the Colosseum because they felt like being observers. And making that their entertainment was them participating and approving of it. Ephesians 5.11 says, Take no part in the unfruitful work of darkness, unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. So is it causing you to participate in evil some way? Here's another question. Is there a good chance that Jesus... Like if you think there's a pretty good chance Jesus would disapprove and there's not a good reason to have it, get rid of it. Even if you think there's a good reason to have it. Do other mature Christians think it's a bad idea? I mean, go talk to them if you're not sure. It's a valid thing to go ask them, well, what do you think of this? And if you're afraid to ask or embarrassed, that would maybe be a sign that it is a bad idea to be involved in it. So we need to clean up our life from whatever is causing a defilement or drawing us away from Christ and an unmixed devotion to Him. How much do you value God's covenant? Your willingness to do spiritual cleanup probably the most accurate answer. So in conclusion, God is calling us to, and I want this to be the focus, that He is calling us to this very special relationship with with us, where He is our Father. He lives with us. He walks with us. He welcomes us. And, if, if we really understand what that means, I don't think we will find it hard to separate ourselves from the world and be separate unto God. If we really understand what it means, we understand that God is serious about doing this. We ought to turn to Him completely. We ought to avoid unequal yokes because we want Christ's yoke. And... We will want to get rid of anything that God finds offensive or would lead us away from a pure and sincere devotion to Christ. So my prayer is that we would uh, just find different ways for for this passage and for this teaching in this passage to be meaningful to us and that we could live it out. Let's stand for prayer. And then after this prayer, you can stay standing and Joe will lead us in the closing song and then we'll be dismissed. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I just thank you for this passage. Thank you for the wonderful promises that you extend to us. Thank you that you're willing to be called our Father and to adopt us and share life experiences with us and, and go with us. And I just pray that you would help us to uh, better understand the meaning of the covenant you are inviting us into. I pray that uh, you would deepen our faith and our love for you, and that as a result of that, uh, we would be uh, continued, continuing to, to become more like you, and that, that we would be a light and salt to the world. I just thank you for your promises and your faithfulness. In Jesus' name my pray. Amen.